0: Welcome to the Mental Health in Schools podcast, designed and delivered by Anna Bateman, founder of Halcyon Education.
1: Hello and welcome to Halcyon Education podcasts. This is episode eight, and in this episode, we feature an interview between myself and Faye Whittle, who's an SEND specialist. We are exploring the connection between the senior mental health lead and the SENCO And then as the interview progresses, we also discuss exclusions as well, and particularly as we know that there is a disproportionate exclusion rate of pupils who are typically identified as having a special educational need or indeed a mental health difficulty.
0: First, a quick word from our sponsors. CPOMS is an online system for schools to manage pastoral concerns and events now used by over 10,000 schools. The main reason it works so well is that the categories of information school logs on CPOMs are chosen by the school, so that the concerns you face that are more unique to your community or individuals can be logged accordingly. It saves a huge amount of time compared to doing things on paper. Chronologies for pupils or school-wide reports can be generated quickly. The service point support team provide an incredible standard of service and are one of the main reasons CPOMS spread by word of mouth to so many schools. For more information, go to www.cpoms.co.uk, where you can also book a demo for your school. Now to the podcast.
1: So hello and welcome to another episode of Halcyon Education Podcasts. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Faye Whittle, who is a Special Educational Needs Specialist, and she's also an education consultant, helps lots of schools and and school leaders around inclusion. And we're going to be talking all things SEMH and and SENCO role today. So thank you for joining me today, Faye.
2: Thank you, Anna. I'm delighted to be here. and looking forward to, to having a chat with you more about both of our worlds and how they interlink, really.
1: Absolutely. Some of the schools that I work with, and I'm sure you'll have similar experience, the mental health. Is, so the senior lead for mental health is sometimes the designated senior lead for safeguarding. Sometimes they're the special educational needs lead. But but there's a massive connection, isn't there, between those two roles and what they oversee as well. So how can schools make sure that those two worlds around mental health and SEND are are really strongly connected and and not working in silos, which we can sometimes see?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We do. We do see that in particular, I think, in larger establishments. So within secondary schools in particular. So I think we need to acknowledge that pupils with SEND are at high risk of experiencing mental health difficulties. So therefore, if the SENCO isn't the uh, mental health lead, it is important that, that they are working really closely alongside each other. And the other high risk groups in terms of experiencing mental health difficulties as well would be, as you've mentioned, looked after children and, and pupils that might be known to the safeguarding needs. So really that that team really of the mental health, the DSL and, and the SEN leads need need to be working very closely alongside each other and their teams. I think what's similar about the roles is that they cannot make a diagnosis, so a mental health leader and Anderson Co. cannot, but what they do need to be is really well-equipped to be able to recognise signs, mm-hmm. to ensure early identification, to be able to implement support, and that might include signposting to other services, and really engaging with families and, uh, and supported families. So there are kind of similarities about the role. And yeah. what I would be, certainly my advice always to senkos if, if they aren't the mental health lead, is that they, they really are championing the latest mental health and wellbeing knowledge and training and approaches. So there really is that strategic whole school approach and a coordinated approach.
1: When do you advise this crossover then between these roles and the overseeing between a child or a young person who's presenting a mental health difficulty when it seems to be perhaps something new that's not not known before, but then the child or young person has ongoing support, but it's still impacting on them and their learning and and their, their ability to access the curriculum or be in school. But what point is that crossover between the mental health lead role and where that sits in terms of pastoral support and then where that sits in terms of education. And I guess you answered this in a way, the teams should be working together. But where is that crossover in terms of uh, gaining resources around
2: SEMH and SEND for a pupil yeah. like that? Okay, so it's going back to the same code of practice and the four areas of need. And one of those areas of need is social, emotional, mental health needs. So, if a young person requires additional support, then potentially then they are going to go onto the SEM register for SMEH. Mm. So, at that point, the SEMCO has a responsibility to um, oversee and monitor and track the support that's put in place, engage, as we said, with any, any services, and to regularly keep parents updated on any support. You know, at that point where where a young person would go on the SEM register would be where actually it's really clear then that there needs to be a better clarification about who is taking responsibility for what. The families is a big part around that because actually we'll all know that there'll be certain colleagues in schools that are able to build and foster positive relationships with certain families more than mm. another member of staff. So actually, if if it's identified who is going to be that key homeschool link, then it could be the SENCO because they've already got an existing relationship with that family because there's another SEND need. Or actually, if the start of the relationship with the family has been because of concerns around mental health and the mental health leaders built that relationship, then it, the consistency is really key in building that trust that the mental health lead would continue to be that lead member of staff but yeah. would refer back to the SENCO and keep them updated for the purpose of the monitoring and tracking and evaluation of the, the support that's put in place and if there's any particular reasonable adjustments that need to be put in place within the classroom as well. Yeah. Mm. So oh, I, I don't think awesome. there's one set yeah. rule, you know, it it, yeah. it depends on the the child, it depends on the makeup of the school, it depends on resource and existing skills within the staff teams as well.
1: Mm. Mm, I guess what it needs to be is is that child-centered family-centered approach so as you say that who's going to benefit the most from maintaining that relationship well it'll be the family and the child and so you know so important there's that gentle flexibility in school within those roles I suppose as well Mm -hmm. and I know I've heard you talk about and it was something that I wasn't sure of as well when I was working in schools that when does it cross over to the SEN register and when isn't it? And I think you were saying that if a child has started to perhaps have more one-to-one support or external support for their mental health difficulty, that would typically trigger them being included on the SEN register.
2: Yeah, so if you think about the kind of universal support that we would like and see in schools in terms of meeting the needs of all pupils and mental health and wellbeing, When it gets to a point where actually a pupil does need something additional, as you say, so whether that's a a targeted intervention for a period of time or whether that's a specialist intervention, that for me would then trigger that actually it would make sense that they went on the SEM register and particularly if it was impacting within the classroom and, and their accessibility to the curriculum. Yeah, yeah absolutely and I don't think we've cracked that yet and I think you know because it isn't with the identification of SMEH is he, still not clear-cut and each school will interpret the, the code of practice and, and make those decisions around how they do the identification mm-hmm. and you will have schools that might potentially put a child on the same register for SMEH because they're accessing you know additional mentoring support whereas another school might not put them on the same register till it got to the point where they might need to involve external kind of services Mm -hmm. and so certainly some of the work I'm doing at the moment with the schools I'm working with is as a collective school partnership can we agree that pathway and that identification and that's been really welcomed by schools I think because the recent there isn't something they can go to some local authorities might have a document like that but that certainly a lot of the schools I work with there isn't that document so they're Mm. they're having to make those decisions themselves yes often it's better to be able to make those decisions collectively isn't it with with advice as well well.
1: and I think isn't it the children don't then have to stay on the SEND register do they particularly around SEMH that if the interventions the support they've had and it could be a, a shorter term or long term has actually benefited the family and the child that they would then come off that wouldn't they and and would be then monitored
2: absolutely it should be flexible and you would expect that you would see movement within the, that same data and, and the pupils that are on the same register it needs to be closely monitored and reviewed Other factors need to be taken into account. So at pupil progress meetings, in terms of what's attendance and progress looking like, is there any other contributing factors? So from a safeguarding point of view or poor attendance or, and I suppose the difficult one at the moment is the impact of the pandemic as well. We know we've seen a rise in mental health needs. That's a really tricky one to make that call of, is that, a special educational need you know does that call for additional and above and there's no code of conduct there's no
1: nothing around that is the you know global pandemic and i I guess it's that just like you said a judgment of the school local authority that says well actually you know in the short term we think the support that we might put in place for students who've returned and and have struggled we'll monitor it and then and then see where we are i suppose i'm always interested as well, You're passionate and ensure that, um, you know, children and a whole school approach to sort of inclusion is is part of the the work that you do in that whole school environment Mm -hmm. and how powerful that is for pupils with mental health difficulties or special educational need, and particularly in relation to reducing exclusions because sadly the data is still high prevalence of children with mental health difficulties or SEND typically the ones who have been excluded from schools. And so there's still a lot of work to do around that. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you think.
2: As you said, pupils with mental health are more likely to be excluded. So those pupils that might have a medical diagnosis of ADHD, autism, anxiety are more at risk. The data and my experience is showing that. So I think there's things that schools need to ensure that they put in place in order to support those pupils and to safeguard themselves as well, to really feel like they've done everything possible. Mm -hmm. So firstly, is making sure that their policies are inclusive, that they're really clear as to their duties to pupils with mental health issues. So particularly if a child has a, a medical diagnosis as well, they're registered as disabled, so they need to make reference to be well aware of the Equality Act yeah. and the expectations around reasonable adjustments. Yeah. And that needs to be referenced, doesn't it, whether that's embedded into other policies or whether the school has a, a, a mental health policy. That's really important. Having a real good understanding across the, the whole staff team of is really important so any underlying medical needs that pupils might have having an understanding of pupils that might be more at risk to mental health difficulties or any underlying factors is is really important so that staff CPD and having a a comprehensive training package I think is really important in order to to raise awareness and support our teachers and our school staff in, in being able to support those pupils that maybe do exhibit more -hmm. more challenging behaviour. I think it's at an early stage accessing that professional external support as well, making sure that we are working with other professionals Schools that have a team around the school, don't they? And we're, we're seeing an increase, which is great to see around what support is available for schools, particularly around mental health. And, and hopefully, you know, there'll be more funding and support coming schools way around that. So I think it is about seeking professional support. But also, it's not just about getting that advice. It's making sure, and this is where the SENCO and the Mental Health League come back in, in terms of the advice and guidance and support that is recommended or particular interventions or reasonable adjustments that are recommended, that actually they are put into place, that they're closely monitored, that everyone is really clear about mm-hmm. what has been recommended. Yeah, I think also, as we mentioned before, the kind of parents and carers and the involvement of the family really is key. It's having those conversations really early on and building those positive relationships with families really early on. Alpha's child school career and um, to make sure that parents are well equipped with knowledge of their children. They are the experts on their children and we need to value their opinion and, and work really closely with them, but also we need to make them aware if their child is at risk of exclusion and that we keep that dialogue open And we try and work together, really, to manage and support the needs of their child. Mm. And then, I suppose, lastly, what I would probably say is around schools really looking at their exclusion data, monitoring what what trends, what patterns, what are they seeing? Is the particular subjects or particular members of staff or particular hotspots within a school day Mm. where... Pupils are more at risk or at feeling more challenged. And so, therefore, that will come back to again, is the particular CPD or is the things that we need to look at as a school differently to prevent some of that? And certainly, and I don't know from the work you, you do in schools if you've seen this as well, the schools are learning from the pandemic as well. I think there's things actually that have really been positive in the pandemic that have helped in terms of pupils that might struggle at lunch times or those social times or the the start of the school day or that crossover to lessons that actually some of the restrictions have helped prevent some of the behaviours that previously might have raised anxiety of pupils with mental health needs. So all of those things need to be considered when we're thinking about how how can we support our pupils with SEND needs and mental health that are at risk of exclusion?
1: Yeah, and then there's that rigor to it, isn't there? The, the, that consistency of when might things be happening, making sure that we're very clear as a school what your your sort of offering uh, and and those reasonable adjustments look like, because mm. that's that's law, isn't it? How do we then support? With parents and carers as well. And I think you're right. I think I was in a primary a few weeks ago, and they were saying when they had to have the tables separated, they had a really tricky cohort in year five, and actually it helped the children's behaviour that they were not able to get out of their seat because they shouldn't be mixing. And they actually helped for a lot of children that mm-hmm. that structure almost made that more helpful i mean i appreciate what you're saying is for some children actually what they need is the flexibility Mm. uh, but also equally some children having that structure really helps them and their behavior and their their well-being within the classroom environment
2: oh yeah yeah and the same for secondaries that i i've spoken to the staggered lunch breaks it's the challenge around staffing that but actually some schools i've spoken to said they're happy to take that hit because the number of incidents they were having to mop up after lunchtime Mm. has really reduced in terms of then leadership time that's taken up in the afternoons or teachers' time that's taken away from teaching and learning because there's been fewer incidents because there's less children and young people in the same space for a long period of time during Mm. the school day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some really good things to hold on to in what has been quite a turbulent year. Absolutely.
0: Now a short break to hear from our sponsors. Stamps by Post is a family-run business and a Royal Mail, licensed provider of postage stamps to schools, charities and businesses. So whether you're a small rural school or a large multi-academy trust, you can have your stamps delivered straight to your door instead of visiting the post office. And when you order before 4pm, they're dispatched the same day via the first-class post. Stamps by Post have been providing customers with a first-class service now for over 25 years. To find out more or to place an order in just a few clicks, go to www.stampsbypost.com. Now back to the podcast.
1: And are there anything anything else you think schools can do to, to help those children that are most at risk to be able to thrive?
2: I think it's that whole school approach, isn't it? In terms of really ensuring that we're making our schools inclusive, it's making sure that we've got high aspirations for all of our pupils, that we're able to build on their skills and to in- improve success at an individual level, that we're providing that kind of encouragement and, and feedback where some pupils, pupils with mental health needs, do feel accepted and that they belong to the school mm. and that actually we are adapting resources, our teaching our environments to support them really and provide those reasonable adjustments. So I think if we think about classroom practice that's going to help them, it it is about really understanding an individual pupil's profile, their strengths, as well as their difficulties. I think it's really helpful to observe pupils in different environments within the school as well and different lessons so we can see where they do thrive and how we can really build upon that and and provide more learning opportunities for them to, to succeed. As we said, that structure for a lot of pupils really helps, particularly if we think about pupils with autism or high levels of anxiety. They want that clear structure and that predictable environment to help increase their security and confidence and I think being consistent, being firm but fair approach really helps. Breaking down their work, you know, into manageable chunks for them. So all those strategies around using task boards and now and next boards and all the, all the different resources that are available to support our pupils and what's seen as good practice for pupils with autism is actually good practice for all pupils. Yeah, it's allowing. To, to have a, a clean slate, isn't it, at the end of each lesson, at the end of each day, that we're not judging the child for the behaviour that they're displaying, that we're mm. really trying to look at and reflect around, mm. is there anything else possible we can do? How can we make the, our environment as calm and as relaxed for our pupils? Yeah, I think all of those things mm. um, will help support a child that really struggles there's a massive
1: crossover there as well, isn't there? Like you said, with anxiety and mental health, there's sort of the structure, knowing, having that sense of belonging and you know, feeling like you're achieving and getting confidence. Because for a lot of pupils who perhaps academically are struggling, then often their confidence is low, isn't it? And, and you almost need to overcompensate and really, like you said, see where they are succeeding, which subjects, let's observe them, let's see that. And then amplify that and promote it so that that success overtakes this feeling sometimes I think they have of almost never being good enough or just always failing, always on the back foot. And I think sometimes we really need to really think about what that must be like for, for someone, for a child who's, you know, not really been on this planet for that long, really, and had all these life experiences that you and I might have. They're just, yeah, always feeling like they're sort of on the back foot failing or you know, not achieving or, or perhaps they feel different to other people. And that really can lead to that sense of low self-esteem and confidence. So I think there's anything that we can do to, to really promote those side of
2: things it is so much better for them. And that's where I guess we see that link with mental health as well. Let's face it, the education system is unbalanced, isn't it? There's a greater focus on academic attainment than the well-being of pupils. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the work that we do and the leaders that we support in school is exactly around that, isn't it? around trying to strike that balance. And actually, if a, a pupil is in a place where they feel safe, where they feel understood and listened to and their mental health and well-being is, is in a good place, then actually they're going to be ready to learn and feel like they can access the curriculum. I think that balance is really key. It is. And it's a
1: balance, isn't it? It is certainly for leaders, I think, you know, with the pressure of attainment, Ofsted, DfE and their own desire to obviously make sure that children, young people come out of school with really good results. But always that balance between the two. We see lots of schools that do achieve that. They do have personal development and well-being really very strongly alongside academic attainment but what we've got to be careful of is our you know sometimes our pupils who are who are quieter or more marginalized and just ensuring that they're wholly included in them belonging to the
2: school. Yeah I would agree definitely.
1: Well Faye I want to thank you so much for your wisdom the opportunity to hear how how these two sort of worlds work together and and there's an absolute blend there that should never be separated so nothing else those that are listening have really taken that away in terms of how they can support pupils with special educational needs as well so thank you
2: no no thank you for inviting me it's been lovely to talk to you today and some people that we're both passionate about so yeah thank you to colleagues in schools that are doing a grand job of really supporting our pupils so no, yeah because thank they're, you. Yeah, they're exhausted at the moment aren't they? No, no. do you want to just mention your website Um, Yes, so um, my website is faywhittle.co.uk and as Anna mentioned at at the beginning, I'm an inclusion consultant, over 20 years experience of teaching in both primary, secondary and alternative provision. I suppose I've always been in the world of inclusion, supporting schools and school partnerships around those pupils most at risk of exclusion and also uh, was fortunate enough to have been a qualified SENCO and still continue to do a lot of work in schools and supporting school leaders around improving their inclusive practice and particularly their SEM provision in schools so yes please do get in touch if you feel that I could help you further fabulous thanks a lot thank you
1: The connection between these two roles is quite interesting, isn't it? And it ensures that you need to think as a school how these roles are interconnected, and particularly when we think about pupils who've got SEMH within special educational needs. I hope this has given you some whole school approach ideas, some actionable ideas, and also some class based ideas. I also want to share with you a document called The School Exclusions, a Literature Review on the Continued Disproportionate Exclusion of Certain Children. This was something that the DFE published in May 2019. I've provided a link for you. What's really interesting if you look at the executive summary is some of the research findings around school-based causes of exclusion. In the first paragraph of page 7 it says... The extent to which pupils felt they belonged in a school was identified as critical in some of the research. This included feeling valued as an individual, having good relationships with peers and teachers, and feeling that their needs were understood and addressed. They're really quite profound but simple things that schools can do, and sometimes I think we can get into a space where we feel we need a particular expert to be able to help us, and of course, indeed. When there are multiple complex needs, that is the case. But there is a lot we can do in terms of prevention here, isn't there, that has been discussed in many other podcasts about this whole school approach. And when we're thinking about mental health and special educational needs, the importance of value, importance of belonging and good relationships with peers and teachers and feeling that their needs were understood and addressed are all crucial. I think I've talked about it in other podcasts, haven't I? This unconditional positive regard that we have for our pupils is so important as part of this whole school approach. Looking forward to sharing with you another podcast for episode nine. Until next time, take care.